This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for September 4th, 2017. We all live on the same planet, but sometimes people on the right call environmentalists watermelons. Green on the outside, red on the inside, communists in disguise. It's rare to find conservatives or libertarians who don't view environmentalism as either a distraction or a conspiracy, but I've found one. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On the line now, I have Jonathan Wood. He's an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and he's also an adjunct fellow at the Property and Environment Research Centre. Jonathan, you emailed me. We were talking about libertarian environmentalism. I didn't even know that that existed. What is that? So it's an approach to protecting environmental values in a way that considers incentives and economic thinking and the important role that property rights play. Most people, when they think of the environment, I think uh, largely jump straight to regulating that uh, the environmental protection is about correcting for market failure and the government must be the solution. And so we just need more or different different regulations. And what Libertarian environmentalism or free market environmentalism, as others refer to it, uh, mm -hmm. says is that that's not necessarily true, that, of course, we, we do care about environmental protection and that it's absolutely vital that we have clean air, water, and that we prevent species extinction. But government isn't always the best way to go about doing it. Often, uh, property rights are an absolutely vital way of ensuring that people have the proper incentives to care about our air, water, and wildlife. Uh, too often, regulation pits people and pits property owners against the environment mm -hmm. um, and gives them perverse incentives that actually produce the opposite result of what was intended. Yes, yes, I know that that's certainly true. And regulation can often be a fat-fingered attempt to do well. But it's clear that there have been and there still are many environmental problems. If the market could solve them all, why, why hasn't it done it yet? Well, to some extent, uh, the, it, some of it is information problems. Um, we're learning more about environmental problems as, as we go along, and that helps the market work as well as uh, help inform regulation. Um, but part of the answer is that uh, environmental regulations have made it more difficult. Uh, for property rights to protect the environment. So, for instance, historically, one of the ways that we dealt with pollution uh, was through something called the nuisance system. So if your neighbor was polluting your property, you could take them to court and get them to stop. Mm -hmm. uh, but today, the federal government regulates uh, pollution and will give people permits. And, and so you have pro if uh, your property or if your neighbor is polluting your property now, he can say, well, the government told me I can do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that will stop you from protecting your property. So, so you know, some of it is we're learning more every day and that and so judging where where the markets work today based on what they did 100 years ago is somewhat of a false comparison but it's also that uh, environmental regulations do sometimes get in the way one thing that i know that a lot of libertarians are very aware of is what's called the tragedy of the commons and this is 
an economic concept that was developed, I think, in the 19th, maybe even in the 18th century, when every village in England in, in this sort of uh, uh, medieval, idealistic time, every village in England had a common land, which was basically a large area of land. And very often, everybody in that village had the right to graze their cattle or their sheep or whatever on that common. And the tragedy of the common, that idea was developed to explain the fact that if somebody overused that, put too many animals grazing on the common, they personally would gain the benefit of that abuse, but the cost of that abuse would be distributed amongst all of their neighbours. And that was essentially that that is a libertarian defence of private property. Isn't it true, though, that it's very difficult in most cases with pollution to avoid that tragedy of the commons effect. I can put a smokestack on my building and sure, I suffer from the smoke, but that most of the suffering is done by my neighbours and they don't benefit from that. Uh, so so yes, uh, the, the way that property rights and, and free markets can protect uh, environmental resources and prevent the tragedy of commons will vary based on the type of environmental concern you have. Uh, many traditional environmental concerns can be easily solved through traditional property rights. And uh, PLF and PERC recently filed an amicus brief in the main Supreme Court dealing with one of those traditional cases. Tell me this. Uh, so so there, uh, Maine has a problem with uh, its rockweed. Historically, no one really cared about rockweed. It grows in the tidal area between high tide and low tide mm -hmm. and was occasionally picked up to be used as fertilizer. But in recent years, that's become big business so that uh, corporations are going out and harvesting quite a lot of it. And the property owners are concerned about what this could mean because the, the rockweed really is the foundation for the ecosystem that exists around it. And they brought a lawsuit to stop it saying, look, you're trespassing on my property. I actually own the area between high tide and low tide. And The, the, the state of Maine owns it. Is that correct? Right? No, property owners actually do. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so most states and, and most countries, the government owns the air between high tide and low tide, but Maine is one of the few exceptions where the property owner actually goes all the way down to low tide. And so they said, I think reasonably, that, well, I own that land. You can't come onto my property and harvest something growing out of it. That, that's mine. And the reason why they wanted to do that was to protect the environment. They recognized that they had better incentives to ensure that if there was any harvesting, it would be done sustainably. And they, because they were right there, had a reason to care about the other spillover effects so that if there's too much harvesting, the company that did it doesn't care whether there are fewer fish or fewer crabs or few other species in the area. But the property owner who's there every day obviously does. Um, so that's a way that sort of traditional environmental problems of competing um, – demands on limited resources can be resolved through traditional property rights of just owners asserting their rights. Uh, other environmental problems require a bit more creativity. Um, and we've seen some very successful examples of that. So uh, the way that uh, we dealt with um, acid rain in the United States uh, was not the traditional command and control the federal government imposed regulations and forced industry to go along. Instead, they used property rights. They created a tradable permit system so that th they acknowledge that there's going to be some pollution into the air, but we don't want that much because it causes acid rain, which has all these other spillover problems. So we're going to say this is how much is going to be and, and let people bargain over who gets what part. And that creates a very strong incentive for industry to change its practices to reduce its pollution. You're, in order you're to describing cap and trade, essentially. 
Yes. So the, the earliest example of cap and trade actually came from the Acid Rain Program uh, Institute in the United States. Okay. Let me let me go back, Jonathan, to um, one of the first uh, modern environmental laws that was brought in in the UK called the Clean Air Act in 1956. And essentially what this did was it banned Londoners from burning coal in their fires. And there were objections to it at the time. But in fact, thousands and thousands of people were dying every winter from uh, from air pollution, particularly because in winter it was colder, people had to had to burn more coal, but also because the particular way the, uh, the, the winds moved meant that smoke from coal stayed over the city for a long time. Isn't it the case that w- with something like that, the only way to go is regulation? Because you can't sue all six million Londoners for polluting your air. That's right. So as I was saying, there, there are some types of environmental problems where traditional property rights probably won't do the be the best approach, that you need to, to modify them in a way to, to deal with the unique problem. But even in situations like that, I think libertarian has a lot, libertarianism has a lot to contribute, um, that many types of regulations that you might think make sense in one moment won't later. Um, and so maybe prohibiting um, coal was the best way and what the market would have – or what you know what was the rational solution, but often the political process can be infected by special interests, mm-hmm. and so you'll, the regulator can easily be captured uh, by an industry that has something to gain by steering the regulation in a way that benefits them, but might actually take you further away from the optimal solution. Jonathan, hold that thought. Hold that thought, and I think you're absolutely correct that sometimes regulations work really horribly, and one of the main reasons why they work horribly is because there are people in the background who are um, maybe giving bribes, but maybe just whining and dining the right, uh, the, the right lobbyists, whining and dining the right politicians. W- but wouldn't you agree that, I'm sure you're sincere, and I'm sure there are many libertarians who are sincere about the environment, but in the United States, don't you think it's obvious that many of the people who say that they are in favor of liberty and are campaigning against regulations are really doing so on the dime of big, dirty industries? No, uh, I, I doubt many of them are, are doing that. Um, I think most people, uh, their political views are, are, are what they are. So. Really? You, you don't think an oilman like George W. Bush, when he was governor of Texas, who made most environmental regulations voluntary, that they weren't compulsory, that companies, uh, oil companies in particular, could just choose whether or not to comply with them. You don't think that the oil industry was pleased with that? I'm, I'm sure they were, and that's the t- sort of regulatory capture you were asking about. But your question was, are most people who are advocating for liberty or, or consider or proposing new ideas no, no, uh, no. subject I mean, people to that. who are pro- pro- proposing deregulation and removal of uh, environmental regulations uh, and doing so as though they are advocating freedom, isn't it true that in the background, those politicians are very often taking money from dirty industries? And, and so I don't know the overall numbers on the uh, on politicians, but I I, I, I think the the main takeaway point is that the ideas can matter even if you know some people might stand to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know ultimately you have to look at what policies 
are right rather than who are the people that support them. There are a lot of committed libertarians who have shown that more libertarian-leaning policies work better, and many of the command and control regulations that are, at least in the United States, largely relics of a political movement that happened 50 years ago aren't working. So one of the areas where I work in particular deals with the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, our federal policy for endangered species has not changed since 1972. Um, It it really is a Cold War era approach that focuses on um, imposing very burdensome regulations on people who leave their property in a condition that's appropriate for endangered species, which gets the incentives backward. Essentially, we punish the people who are responsible for a species still being around, Um, and it enforces it through, as I said, heavy-handed regulations and the threat of criminal punishment if you do anything with your private property. Well, that is a, a terrible approach if what you want is to conserve and protect endangered species. And we see that in the data. Less than 2% of species that have been listed under the Federal Act have recovered. But when private property owners and industry and environmental groups all work together to pursue voluntary conservation or more flexible approaches, we see great success. And, and so I, I think there are certainly going to be cases where you have special interests uh, pursuing their own agenda, but still the overall idea that heavy-handed regulation is often not the best way to go is is correct, uh, that, that you need to get people to buy in and cooperate. Mm-hmm. Making people the enemies of the environment is the exact wrong way to go. I think you and me, Jonathan, will be on the same page when you say that frequently regulations are bad, they're heavy-handed, they're ill thought out, they don't really work. But I'm struggling to find good examples of where libertarian principles have led to real environmental benefits. Okay. So, um, you know, Can you I, give me I think a hard example. Yeah, so I think the the main example I gave you earlier is a good one of how traditional property rights can protect and solve demands on certain types of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many others dealing with endangered species. So, for example, there are a variety of antelope uh, species from Africa that are almost extinct in the wild um, but are thriving in Texas. Um, and the reason for it is free market forces. Uh, ranchers in, in in Texas found that there was a strong demand for th- these antelopes uh, from hunters and from tourists, and they could make a lot of money by growing um, herds on their private property. And within a few years, you saw a huge explosion uh, in these species that isn't happening in the wild. Uh, it, you know the incentives. For Ah, so in these, the are capt- these are captive species that are out, outperforming the, the wild population. Well, it, in a sense, yes. I mean, you have to be careful about the use of the word captive. I think most people think of that as someone, in, uh, an animal in a very confined space. These are huge thousand acre ranches with roaming herds of species. If you a- And a fence around them. Right. Um, which is often also the true in, uh, in public lands where the species naturally roam in Africa because they're national parks with. Uh, with with boundaries around the edges of them. Um, But where you have property owners with an incentive to protect and grow uh, their herds, you have more of the animals. Whereas in the wild, the animals are either looked at as a nuisance because they prevent people from growing crops or protecting their property or as an opportunity to to cheat. It's sort of the tragedy of the problem – tragedy of the commons problem you were mentioning earlier where there's a pretty strong incentive uh, to poach these animals since no one owns them and no one has a particularly strong incentive to protect them. Protecting particular endangered species is, I'm sure, important uh, for many people. Uh, the one species that I'm most concerned with, though, is humans. And if humanity does not 
quickly get a grip on the problem of climate change, we're facing a very grim future. How does libertarianism address that? Well, I think um, most of the debate we see on climate change actually shows that the the libertarian arguments are ha- and the free market inv- arguments are actually having some pretty strong effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so? Most of the people, most of the people who talk today about solutions don't look at the same sort of solutions that were talked about for pollution problems thirty or forty years ago. It's not, you know, we're going to dictate that every industry do this and this industry do that, and it's not the sort of fine tuning command and control uh, regulations. That that were common in the past. Um, instead, regulators are, are influenced by the arguments that free market environmentalists and libertarian environmentalists have been making for the last few decades and are looking more towards market-oriented solutions so that even you know, left uh, supporters of regulation for, for climate change talk about cap-and-trade or carbon taxes that, that try to establish a economic incentives for people to do things to mitigate the externalities they're causing. Sure. It's worth remembering that um, way back in, I think, the late 1980s, early 1990s, cap and trade was a Republican response to Clinton's, uh, that's to say Bill Clinton's, uh, and of course, Al Gore's concern with climate change. Um, but the 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 core problem exists there are and i've forgotten the figure but it's many billions of tons of carbon in the form of coal and oil principally under the ground on this planet and a very large portion of that carbon has to stay where it is in order not to threaten the future of humanity on this planet if somebody is there essentially living on top of what they see as something that can be readily converted into cash, just dig the carbon out of the ground, be it coal or oil, and burn it. How do you use non-state methods to prevent them from doing that? Uh, Well, I think the easiest way is just to uh, buy up the rights. You know, if you're concerned about over- Overuse of fossil fuels, you can buy up the mineral rights and conserve them. And environmental groups have done this for a very long time to protect important ecological places um, and to protect view sheds and watersheds through conservation easements and lots of other forms of property rights they've been able to achieve. Okay, hold hold on. I I understand what you're saying. You're essentially saying that if somebody is living on on a big lump of coal or a big pool of oil under their ground, we buy it off them and we tell them, we don't want you to take it out. We want to buy it, own it, and leave it under the ground. Is that is that what you're saying, essentially? You know, that's that's one way to mitigate some of that concern. But I think the bigger one is just to fix the incentives so that the market works correctly. And you know, if internalizing the externalities makes uh, fossil fuel burning less competitive, there's going to be less of it, and and the demand to extract more from the ground will go down. Oh, okay, but that essentially means delivering vast amounts of money to governments like Maduro's in Venezuela and like the uh, Al Saud family in Saudi Arabia. These are some of the most odious regimes on the planet. And the reason they exist is because they are financed and they're, they, they can, they can basically have the, the finest repression and the finest torture instruments for their dissidents that money can buy because you and me are paying for it through, through our, uh, when, when we put gas in our, in our automobile. Uh, you're saying give them the money anyway. That seems crazy to me, even if it's necessary. 
Well, so I, I <laughs> to be clear, I, I think that is a problem that's best dealt with through libertarian leaning regulation to, to deal with uh, externalities. Um, the question of what do you deal with people who you know might so I was thinking you were asking a question more. So imagine someone who's made their retirement uh, dependent on some investment they made and, and might be wiped out. There might be some. Um, Sure, sure. Uh, and that's a way that somebody there, who's, who's, who's essentially poor other than the resources they're living on top of, it's rational to perhaps pay them. But I, it, it, it strikes me that it's difficult to make a distinguish between uh, somebody, you know, who's perhaps uh, otherwise in poverty and uh, subsidizing their lifestyle in exchange for not, uh, for them not digging up that carbon. But uh, um, the billionaires of the Al Saud family have the potential to do an awful lot more damage and they can buy a lot of influence both within their own com countries and uh, in the United States and in other Western countries we see that they're using their money to have very significant influences in the West. And uh, and the, the question is which way does that cut? So so I think you're right that the, the huge um, individual special interests you know, ha are going to have an effect. Do you think having a political decision where, where regulators or government is deciding something politically is going to deal with the, the best? So suppose the government decides we're going to control emissions from each industry individually. That creates a huge incentive for lobbying so that you get exactly those sorts of interests affecting the outcome. Whereas I think a libertarian approach would say that uh, – it'd say several things. But the first one is that you need to consider those impacts, the, those incentives and focus more on free market oriented and market oriented solutions so that things like carbon taxes or um, cap and trade make more sense than um, command and control regulations do. But then the other side of the equation is uh, how do you make sure that the, we, we maximize the opportunities for technology to mitigate the problem or for people to um, change their behavior to reduce the, the negative impacts? Um, and I think the free market, free market environmentalism, libertarian environmentalism has a lot to say about that. Uh, the New York Times recently ran a, a, pay, a, a story on a study that was done in Africa where uh, conservation groups paid uh, local people a relatively small amount to set aside their own forest and prevent uh, basically clear cutting. And what they found was that for a very small fee, they got huge um, benefits by keeping the, the carbon in the ground. So the, the trees act as a carbon sink and if you cut them down, it releases a lot of carbon into the air. Uh, the, the, what they found was that the benefits were many times uh, what it took to actually pay people to conserve their, their private property. And I think there are lots of other opportunities like that. Um, and the less regulation we have of our economy, the more opportunities there are for entrepreneurs to develop new ways to reduce environmental impacts or to make us less vulnerable to them. Yeah, I think actually, Jonathan, you're absolutely correct that the flexibilities of the market when we're deciding who and how to use what carbon we might use, for example, the flexibilities of the market are a much better way to decide that rather than uh, having some official sitting in an office somewhere, uh, perhaps influenced by donations, making that decision. But wouldn't you accept that the larger idea, the larger question of 
what that limit should be. That's something that's very hard to do by uh, libertarian principles. I don't think so. So I, I think you you might be confusing libertarianism with anarchism. Uh, I, I, well, most some, libertari- some libertarians do. Certainly do. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think most are. Most libertarians believe in, in small government and, and rational government that uses the market in as many opportunities as possible. And I, I think you're right that an anarchist system does uh, struggle with uh, pollution concerns because you have very little ability to protect yourself from your neighbor. But that that I don't think is what libertarian environmentalists or free market environmentalists are talking about. I think the idea is that if we see a problem and it requires some sort of – one, find as many ways to deal with it that don't require government interference because of the – um, the incentive problems that creates, but where you need government intervention, shift it so that you use the market um, as much as possible rather than having politicians or bureaucrats f- trying to fine-tune the economy, which they don't have the information to do and don't have the incentives to do because of regulatory capture. Jonathan Woods, attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and adjunct fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on September 4th, 2017. I have references for the things we were talking about in the show notes for this podcast that you can find on the website, along with links to Jonathan's law firm and to the Property and Environment Research Centre that he works with. Do you know somebody who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Jonathan Wood at John underscore C underscore Wood. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use Apple Podcasts or Google Play or any other podcast app or software. There's links and an RSS feed for all of that on the website. And if you don't use a podcast app or software, you can subscribe by email. Just enter your email address on the Challenging Opinions website. And each time a new show goes online, you get a simple email with a link to listen and zero spam, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's September 11th, I'll be talking to Darius McCullough and he'll explain what his YouTube channel, MGTOW Knowledge, is all about. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Liam McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.